Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would speak to us through your word. We pray that your great holiness would be impressed upon us anew and that we would feel the enormity of your mercy. And Lord, we ask that it would change everything about us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. As uh, Denny and I, as, when I was in college, one of the reasons I went to Dallas Theological Seminary was because a guy named Tommy Nelson had gone to Dallas Theological Seminary, and his preaching really gripped me when I was in college. And Denny and I were both influenced separately, he, he in Louisiana, me in Arkansas, by this guy, Tommy Nelson. And uh, this week, Denny sent me two recordings of Tommy Nelson preaching on Romans 9. And um, in the first of these recordings, I, I don't remember if it was the first or second, one of these recordings, uh, Tommy says, Romans 9 is the death valley of preachers. Preachers want to avoid this because it is so controversial. And then he went on to say, things are too quiet around here. Let's have a split. <laughs> because he's, he was about to preach this passage. And um, as, as I was approaching um, getting ready for this passage, I really wanted to be well-rested and I wanted to be uh, ready to go. And then yesterday just happened to be a very hot, sweltering day, and I was out in the sun getting sunburned, playing with my kids all day, so I was very tired last night. And then, wouldn't you know it, uh, in the middle of the night, 3.30, 3.20 in the morning, the dog barks, and I have to get out of bed to attend to the dog. And then, when I come back to bed, my sweet wife and I, you know, the, the Song of Songs talks about how there are foxes in the vineyard, and um, so we start having to deal with some of these foxes in the vineyard, and we wind up talking basically until daybreak. So, um, yeah, so much for being well-rested before <laughs> preaching Romans 9. Um, so I would ask that you, that you pray for me, and if I seem to have a meltdown in the middle of the sermon, just chalk it up to me being exhausted. Um, we're going to be looking this morning at Romans 9, verses 14 through 18. And as we approach this, let me briefly, let me brief you, brief, briefly remind you of what we've seen to this point in the lead up to this passage that's before us. At the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul talks about how nothing can separate those who belong to Jesus from the love of God in Christ. Absolutely nothing can separate them. And that seems to provoke this question that he anticipates and then goes on to deal with, which is, what has separated the Israelites, the people of God, from the love of God in Christ Jesus? And in Romans 9, 1 through 5, what Paul first does is he insists on the evangelistic burden that he feels for those Israelites. He talks about how he has unceasing anguish and great sorrow in his heart because he wants them to be saved, how he's willing himself to be cut off from Christ that they might be saved. And then in 9.6, he says, their being cut off is not because God's promises to them have failed. So 9.6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. And then he begins to explain the way that God has chosen, the way that God has elected some to salvation. And in verses 7 through 9, he says, God chose Isaac... And he didn't choose Ishmael. 
And then perhaps anticipating the response, well, Ishmael wasn't even born of Sarah. He says, okay, uh, Rachel had two sons, Jacob and Esau. They were twins. And before they were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, this is verse 11, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So God chose Jacob, not Esau. And any time in, in my life, and I've, I've been uh, teaching at a seminary now for like 16 years, and uh, I used to teach at a seminary where these ideas were controversial. Anytime I've talked about these ideas with people for whom these ideas were controversial, this question of God's justice, which Paul now takes up, is the very question that arises. It basically comes down to this. That's not fair. How can God choose people before they're born, before they've done anything good or bad. That's not fair. And Paul is going to take that question on here in Romans 9, 14 through 18. As we, as we begin to, before we, we begin to consider this, I want, to, I want us to be in position to have this passage make sense to us. And for this passage, for what Paul says to make sense to us, what he says here in Romans 9, 14 through 18, we have to want justice. We have to feel the need for justice, and we have to also recognize that we deserve justice. And so as I was thinking about this, I, I, um, I went and looked up outrageous pardons. You know, if I, that's what I did. I just Googled outrageous pardons. And I came across this article, 11 Notable Presidential Pardons. I'm not going to read all these to you, but I do want to draw your attention to a couple of them. In one case, these three guys, Samuel Mudd, Edmund Spangler, and Samuel Arnold, these three men were convicted conspirators in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. And they served time for their crime but all three received pardons from Andrew Johnson in 1869. I suspect that for most people living today, those guys should have gone to the gallows. That's, what, that's the way we respond to that, isn't it? We respond, they helped in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln? They should have died. No way pardoned them. How could they have been pardoned? And then another example that I think would similarly provoke Outrage today, maybe you, you know the name Peter Yarrow. If you don't know that name right offhand, you'll recognize it from the trio Peter, Paul, and Mary. This guy, Peter Yarrow, it, it, this article relates, he had legions of young fans. Unfortunately, some were a bit too young. In 1970, he was convicted of taking, quote, improper liberties with a 14-year-old fan. I think I know what that means. Jimmy Carter granted Yarrow a pardon. And I think most of us today would think, wrong move, wrong move. No way he deserves a pardon. Right? We feel the need for justice when we hear about that, don't we? We've got to feel the need for justice as we approach Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 18. But the justice that we need to feel needs to be directed at our own hearts. Because the outrage that we feel about co-conspirators in the assassination of Abraham Lincoln and the outrage that we feel 
about some famous guy with a lot of influence taking improper liberties with a 14-year-old. The outrage that we feel is the same outrage that God in His holiness feels toward all sinners. All sin is outrageous and perverse and disgusting and deplorable and damnable. So we are not, we are not different in quality from those other sinners that have received pardons. That's what we must embrace. If you don't embrace that, if you reject the idea that you're a sinner, this passage is going to seem like the argument is not convincing to you. But if you embrace the idea that you're a sinner and that Romans 1 through 3 condemns you too, then what Paul says here will make perfect sense. So in response to the anticipated objection, that's not fair. And, and the objection is arising out of what Paul says in 9, 9, 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. An objection arises out of that. That doesn't seem fair. And Paul raises the objection for his audience in verse 14. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is this unfair? Now, his, his initial answer to this is, by no means, and this is this famous meganoita, may it never be. So he's just absolutely, categorically rejecting the possibility that God is not fair, that God is not just. And, and so as we start, here's, here's the idea that we have to maintain as we work our way through this passage. God is just. God will be just against sinners. No one will look at any mercy that God has has distributed and respond to it the way that we respond to Jimmy Carter's pardon and Andrew Johnson's. But nobody, once the evidence is brought out, nobody will respond and say that was wrong. Nobody will respond that way. God can no more be unjust than a mountain can be light as a feather. A mountain cannot be other than what it is. It is a massive, heavy, block of granite. It's, it's huge. A mountain cannot be other than what it is, and God's character cannot be other than what it is. God is just. So let me encourage you. Last, uh, last April, April of uh, 2018, Jake and I got to go to Germany, and we got to see these ancient castles. And one of these castles was right in the, the sort of convergence of these two rivers, and then there was this sort of ridge rising out of the rivers that, that the waters flowed through. And so geographically, this castle was perfectly positioned because you couldn't, you had to cross a river to get to it. It had a, had a nature-made moat, and then it had this wall of rock. And then there, up on top of that wall of rock, there were these maze of, of huge blocks of, con these walls were just so thick. Imagine God's faithfulness as that kind of castle this geographically strategic and, and, and perfectly strong, unassailable refuge that cannot be penetrated. That's what God's faithfulness is. So if you're, if you're troubled by anything here, let me just encourage you to flee to the faithfulness of God and, and, and feel God's faithfulness for you as, as this 
this rampart with these, these impenetrable foundations that, is go- that are going to protect you. Here you can take refuge in the faithfulness of God. So Paul starts with an assertion. By no means, that's his assertion. And, and, and so verse 14 amounts to God is just. God is fair. God does, he always does what is right. That's what Paul is asserting in verse 14. Now what he's going to do in verse 15 is provide a proof of that. And the, the proof that Paul provides is intended to reorient our perspective away from this is unfair to, to, to looking at this from the right angle. So look at verse 14. I'm sorry, verse 15. Paul says, For he says to Moses, and here he quotes the passage that we used as our call to worship this morning, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. What Paul is communicating here is, if you respond to verse 11 and think, this is unfair, you are making an assumption that is unwarranted. And that assumption is this, God owes people mercy. God owes people pardons. And what Paul is saying is, no, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. God is just, and he freely grants mercy to whom he chooses to grant mercy. But no convicted criminal, no guilty sinner can stand before him and say to him, you owe me mercy. That that is an entirely and completely wrong-headed way to think about this. And it is only if we think about it that way that we will respond to God's choice of these people and not those people or this person and not that person with, with the charge, that's unfair. No, it's not unfair. The president of the United States, he can pardon criminals. Criminals that go unpardoned do not have a claim on that pardon. They cannot say, you owe me mercy. He doesn't owe them mercy. Mercy, we have to get this clear in our heads, mercy is a gift. And in the same way that, that I mean, that you all recently were so gracious to, to me and Denny as we celebrated 10 years here, you didn't owe me gifts. I could not, I had no, I, I, I could not have stood here on the 10th anniversary Sunday and say, you owe me. No, you don't owe me. You don't owe me anything. A gift is something that's, that freely arises out of the goodness of your heart. That's what mercy is. It's freely arising out of God's compassionate heart, and he is lavishing it upon those to whom he's pleased to give it. People don't earn gifts. If you've earned the gift, it's not a gift. If you earn salvation, it's not grace. It wasn't a gift. So let me encourage you, if if you've experienced the mercy of God, let me encourage you to apply this reality. Verse 15, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Let me just encourage you to savor God's favor to you. He is kindly disposed to you. And as a kind of illustration of of how I think we ought to embrace this and receive it, you know, if everybody receives something, it starts to be taken for granted, doesn't it? So, 
There, there are lots of places in the world where it's a privilege, it's a gift, it's, it's an enormous benefit to get the opportunity to learn to read. Not in this country. In this country, everybody has access to that. Anybody can go to public school. And how do people respond to it? They don't want to be there. They don't like those teachers. They don't, they don't even begin to recognize the privilege and the favor and the benefit that's being offered to them. You have the opportunity to read, to learn to read. This, this will open up everything in your life. And they want no part of it. And God will not allow that to happen with his mercy. God, God wants those who receive his mercy to recognize he didn't owe this to me. Not everybody gets this. I am receive, I'm being treated in a way that he doesn't treat everybody. You know, there's a lot of talk about privilege in our culture, a lot of talk about privilege. This is the privilege. This is the privilege. The privilege is to have God lavish his kindness on you. The privilege is to have God say, I am going to be, I was for you from eternity past. I will be for you for eternity future. And I will go to such great lengths to save you that I will not even spare my own son. That's privilege. This is a privilege you cannot earn. This is a privilege for which you can take no credit. This is a privilege that ought to have all of us humbled and melted. And we ought to respond to this privilege by feeling. I want everybody to have this privilege. So let me, let me encourage you to feel how privileged you are that the mercy of God has just washed over every aspect of your... If you are hearing me say these words, if, you, if this Bible is open in front of you, the mercy of God is just undulating over you like waves of almighty kindness... And you should just bask in it. You should, I don't know if you've ever been to the ocean and you felt the waves just sort of move you like this, just sway your body. That's how you should receive the mercy of God. Just let it carry you through your life. Feel it and then distribute it. And by distribute it, what I mean is tell anybody that'll listen about the goodness of God in Christ. Charles Spurgeon said in response to this, if heaven were by merit, it would never be heaven to me. For if I were in it, I should say, I am sure I am here by mistake. I am sure this is not my place. I have no claim to it. But if it be of grace and not of works, then we may walk into heaven with boldness. I didn't earn this. This is God's free goodness. So, is there injustice with God? By no means. And then there's a proof because mercy is a gift. And he says, I give the gift of mercy to whom I give the gift of mercy. And I decide to be compassionate to whom I decide to be compassionate. And then Paul makes another assertion that's a conclusion drawn from what he's just said. Look at verse 16. He says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion. Human will is talking about what people choose. And Paul has said up in verse 11 that it's not because of works. And now he says in verse 16, it, it depends not on human will or exertion. Exertion is talking about effort. 
This is not down to your effort, and it's not down to your choice. When, when we, figuratively speaking, when we approach the pearly gates, we will not say, I got here because I worked harder than other people. We will not say, I get in because I made the right choices in my life. No, we will say, the mercy of God was poured out on me. As I was thinking about, about this, um, maybe I'm just, uh, maybe I think about Harry Potter too much, but um, one of the things that came to mind was um, there's this scene in um, uh, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire when um, Harry has saved the little sister of Fleur Delacour. And, and Fleur is this, I don't know if you've read the novels, but Fleur is this sort of enchanting, she's this magical uh, girl who's just, uh, you know, the, the boys in the book, they see her and they just, their, their faces go slack and they're just totally enchanted by her beauty and glory and they start doing stupid things to try to make themselves uh, look macho for her. And um, Harry saves the life of Fleur's little sister and Fleur goes to Harry and she gives him a kiss. And she didn't owe him a kiss. And, and she, just, she just, out of her own free goodness and mercy, gave him a kiss. And then, and then Ron Weasley is there. And Ron is trying to get himself in position to get a kiss from Fleur. And he gets passed over. And, and, and that's sort of the way this works. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It was out of the goodness of Fleur's heart that she chose to kiss Harry and not Ron. And uh, there's nothing that Ron can do about it. You've been saved. If, if you trust in Jesus, you've been delivered. You didn't accomplish it. You cannot undo it. There's enormous security in this knowledge that God, God chose you from eternity past. Ephesians 1 says, before the foundation of the world, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons. There is there is unassailable security in that. And you know, uh, if we become a people who know God's mercy, we will be a people of stunned joy. We'll be like, we'll be like the wording of Psalm 126. Psalm 126 is one of these songs of ascents. And they say, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. If, if we come to understand the mercy of God, we will be people of stunned joy. And you know, the mercy of God, understanding this, appreciating this, embracing this, the mercy of God will grow hope in us. Because we'll know he's for us. Who can be against us? He, he, he hasn't spared his own son. He will certainly give us all things. We'll be people of joy. We'll be people of hope. If you're here this morning and you don't identify as a believer in Jesus, you don't identify as a Christian, I want to I quote a preacher uh, to you. This, this preacher commenting on these realities, the mercy of God, he said this, if you have no share in the living God, may God have mercy upon you. 
If you have no share in Christ's rising from the dead, then you will not be raised up in the likeness of his glorified body. If you do not attain to that resurrection from among the dead, then you must abide in death. What we want for you, if you're not a believer, what we want for you is this almighty mercy. What we want for you is for you to experience this favor from God so that you can be a person of stunned joy, so that you can realize, I was guilty before him. And as Romans 3 says, he put Christ forward as a sacrifice of propitiation, and he counted his death as my death so that his life can give me life. So Paul makes this assertion in verse 14, God is just. And then the proof of that justice in verse 15 is that God gives mercy to whom he pleases. And then he makes another assertion in verse 16. It doesn't depend on human choice or human effort, but on God who decides freely to show mercy. And then Paul gives another proof in verse 17. And the proof is from Scripture. And we read it earlier as part of the Old Testament reading. This is Paul is now quoting Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, and he says in verse 17, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What, what God is saying to Pharaoh is, it, we, could, we could elaborate it on it like this, I created you. You don't exist for yourself. I created you, and I had a purpose when I created you. And that purpose was to display my power in you and to make it so that my name would be proclaimed in all the earth. And Pharaoh, I harden your heart to accomplish my purpose. And, and if, we, if we think about illustrations of this, you could say, well, a watchmaker has a purpose for making a watch, doesn't he? He wants it to tell time. And the creator of the watch has the right to make the watch for the purpose that he designs. And if you think, well, we're talking about an inanimate object, that's not a very good illustration. Well, what about those who make artificial intelligence? Don't they have the right to say, I will do with the artificial intelligence that I create what I want to do, what I want that intelligence to accomplish? And if you still object and you say, well, we're talking about human beings, I would respond and say, yes, and we're talking about God. And the God of the Bible is saying, I do have purposes. I do have intentions. And, and what he's going to say, we'll get to it the next time we're together. I think it'll be next week in Romans 9, 19 through 23. What God is going to say is, I'm after the display of my glory. That's what he's ultimately after. And God's purposes and God's intentions, he has the right to do as he pleases with his creation. So I think the question for us here is, is do we recognize God's rights as our creator? And then if we say yes to that, do we love God's name? And then if you say yes to that, in response I would say, don't choose to play the part of Pharaoh. Embrace this. Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ. Embrace the mercy of God. Charles Spurgeon, again, 
He said, God's mercy is so great that you may sooner drain the sea of its water or deprive the sun of its light or make space too narrow. You may sooner do that than diminish the great mercy of God. There is mercy for all who will receive it. But Paul has he's made an assertion in verse 14, God is just. He proves that in verse 15 with this quotation from Exodus 9, 16. And then he makes another assertion in verse 18. It doesn't depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. Another proof in verse 17, one of the ironies of that proof, is that the Israelites who have rejected Jesus, they wouldn't identify with Pharaoh. They would think that they identify with Moses. And Paul is turning this on them, and he's saying, actually, you all who have rejected Jesus, you're now playing the part of Pharaoh. You're not playing the part of Moses. Moses, as Jesus said, Jesus says, you... you you trust Moses because you think in him you have eternal life, but he wrote about me. Moses wrote about Jesus. So if you're going to identify with Moses, you've got to, you've got to look to Jesus. And having said this, Paul draws a conclusion here in verse 18. And this is a conclusion that is shocking, it's surprising, and it can be difficult to embrace unless you accept the premises that Paul has been laying down. You accept everybody's guilty before God. You accept God is always going to do what's right. You accept mercy is a gift that God freely gives to whom he pleases. If you accept all that, then you can accept this conclusion in verse 18. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. He's the creator. He has the right to do it. If you you have responses to this, like, well, doesn't this obviate Human responsibility. Doesn't this nullify human responsibility? Come back next week, and we'll look at Romans 9, 19 and following, where Paul addresses that very question. As we think on this, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. What what came to my mind was the way that Job responds at the end of the book of Job. At the end of Job, God has, has sort of paraded his mighty works in creation before Job, and Job says in Job 42, 5 and 6, he says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I'm not going to read the way that that Job, the Lord parades creation before Job, but I, I do want to invite you to consider some realities about the world that God has created. So, Think about Niagara Falls. Maybe you've been there or seen pictures or videos of it. 3,160 tons of water per second is flowing over those falls. That's 75,750 gallons of water over the American and the Bridal Veil Falls and 681,750 gallons flowing over the Horseshoe Falls. That's an enormous amount of water. Think about Mount Everest. If you just go from base camp to the summit, what you've got there is 2.1 trillion cubic feet. And you can multiply that by the density of of the granite, and Mount Everest weighs 357 trillion pounds, and that's not counting the snow and ice. The oceans... The deepest part of the ocean is in the Mariana Trench. It's just under seven miles deep. Human beings. 
I don't know why the Environmental Protection Agency does this, but they set a value on human life. They value, the Environmental Protection Agency values a human life at $9.1 million. The, the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, they have another valuation of human life. I don't know why these people do this, but they value human life at $7.9 million. The Department of Transportation has a different figure, $6 million. Look, look, human life is of inestimable value. Slavery is still a thing. A slave, on average, worldwide, sells for about $90. We are saved by the mere mercy of God. God made all this stuff. God is just. He's going to be just against slavers. He's going to be just against assassinators. He's going to be just against child abusers. He's just. And he's also merciful. Merciful beyond our imagination. As, as Jill and I were talking about this passage and, and the way that this passage applies to us and the way that we can respond to it, um, you know, there, there are several ways that this, these ideas help us. They help us, one, in assuring us that if God is sovereign over salvation, he's sovereign over everything. And what that means is that the trials that we face are not accidental. The trials that we go through, they're not, they're not random and meaningless. Meaningless, they're not meaningless. That's what I'm trying to say. Also, if God is sovereign in election, and if he has said that there will be people from every tribe and tongue and, and language and nation worshiping Christ before the throne, we can be confident that anywhere we go to take the gospel, people are going to respond. Some people are going to, God has elect people there. And our responsibility is faithfully to proclaim the gospel. So this is motivation and confidence for missions. And also, if God is sovereign over all things, and if God is sovereign over salvation, this takes the pressure off us in our parenting. Because... It ultimately doesn't hinge on our performance. It also takes the pressure off us in our evangelism because it ultimately doesn't depend upon how persuasive we can be. One preacher in response to this passage said, sin is a thing of time, but mercy is from everlasting Transgression is but of yesterday, but mercy was ever old. Before you and I sought the Lord, the Lord sought us. This, really came, this, this idea of God's mercy really came home to me when I was a student at Dallas Theological Seminary. Some of you have heard me tell this story. Uh, there was a time when I was totally and completely out of money. I was out of resources. My parents weren't going to help me. My parents weren't in position to help me. And, um, and I didn't know what was going to happen. And it looked like, it looked like um, I was either going to have to take out a loan or drop out of school or the Lord was going to have to provide. And, and there was a day when I actually walked into the financial aid office and I picked up one of these federal loan applications and I looked at it. And then I looked at the, the person behind the desk and I said, you know, I'm just going to leave this here and I'm going to pray and I'm going to see if the Lord provides. 
And I went to church, and I described at, at a meeting of the, the youth staff, I was a youth intern at that church, and, um, and I described to the members of the youth ta- staff my situation. And this guy, Kent Lawrence, who was also on youth staff, and he was also a student at Dallas Theological Seminary, he prayed, God, I pray that someone would just give Jim the money. And about a week or so later, I go to my box, and I open my box, and there's this little pink note in there. And I pull that pink note out of my box, and I start reading this thing. And it was like my brain stopped functioning. You know, It was like I couldn't compute what was on this paper. The paper said, an anonymous donor called the seminary and paid the rest of the, the the balance of your bill. And, and I'm looking at this note and I'm, I'm having like a theological crisis because I'm, I'm thinking, you know what I'm thinking? What did I do to earn this? What did I do right? What did I do to establish on my behalf God's favor toward me? And as I processed this, it eventually came home to me, I didn't do anything to establish God's favor toward me. It was the mere mercy of God. I didn't earn it. I couldn't take credit for it. I didn't deserve it. He just poured it out in my life. That's how salvation works. Charles Spurgeon said it beautifully. He said, so long as we are receivers of mercy, we must be givers of thanks. This will make us people of stunned joy, It'll grow hope in our hearts. It'll make us thankful. Let's pray. Lord, you have been better to us than we can even begin to describe or imagine. And it is all mercy. We don't deserve you. We don't deserve to know about Jesus. And you have been so gracious to us. Lord, we love you, and we pray that our hearts would be so overwhelmed by your mercy that we would live lives of courageous devotion to you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to stand where we need to stand. We pray that you would help us to speak when we need to speak. We pray that the love of Christ would compel us. Lord, we pray that you would Make us people who are so eager and ready to forgive because we know how much we've been forgiven. Lord, make us not like that unforgiving servant in the parable that Jesus told who wouldn't forgive the trivialities when so much had been released from his debt. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would cause our hearts to thrill to the sound of your mercy. We pray that your mercy would be the best news that we ever hear, the greatest privilege that we know ourselves to experience, and we pray that it would dominate our lives. Lord, we love you and we commit ourselves to you in Christ's name. Amen.